The waiting is over. 6-4, Andy Murray is the Wimbledon champion. Hello and welcome back to episode four of Dusty Trophies. through that last game because it was torturous to watch as well. How did you feel at that last match point? Uh, imagine playing it. Hello and welcome to episode four of Dusty Trophies. Thank you very much all of those who have listened to the first three episodes. This is actually our first episode we're recording since that initial batch so hopefully we'll have taken on some of that feedback um, that, that you've very kindly offered us uh, ahead of today's episode. So just to reiterate, I'm Tom. I'm Ian. And I'm Dan. And for today's focus, we'll be looking at Andy Murray and how he won uh, the first Wimbledon singles title by a British man in 77 years, I believe it was. So what we'll do to, to begin with is we'll look at what happened before that. So to, to provide you with some context. Now in 1936, Fred Perry beat Gottfried von Kram of Nazi Germany. And it took an entire 77 years for Sir Andrew Baron Murray, yes, Baron, nice. uh, to break this open era duck. However, what happened before this is what made this victory so poignant. So... If we look at 2012, Andy Murray got to the final. He faced Roger Federer and you know, won the first set and then, in typical British fa- fashion, capitulated. Combine that with the fact that Federer turned on his sort of majesty and Murray, of course, lost 3-1. Now, I thought what would be good to start off things today is to look at some of the tweets from the British public <laughs> at that time. Okay? Love that. Okay. So, oh, this could be terrible. <laughs> I looked at what Susan Jones, tennis expert from Barry, was saying, and she said, I've never seen the git smile. Thanks, Sue. Thanks, Sue. Big season. One of the great wits of our time, Paul Kirkbride, responded to Andy Murray's tears by saying, more like cringe Rue Murray. <laughs> oh, God. One of the blandest bits of chat this century. And then finally... Uh, just a whole host of other sofa dwellers who are trying to tell Andy Murray, of course, tagging him in this as well, telling him what he needs to do to improve his serve, um, which I thought was was laughable. Um, but of course, you know what this meant is that Murray had now f- had now had four defeats from four major finals, and he did look destined to fall short in tennis's greatest era. What we always like to properly start this podcast with is uh, to explain our own experiences and and fandom of this sport so that you, the listener, have a clear idea of our expertise or lack thereof. So starting with Ian, what's your relationship with tennis? And secondly, who, in your opinion, is the GOAT? 
Uh, I have been giving giving more thought to who I think is the goat recently in uh in my studentship of tennis, and it's actually changed in the last year or so. Uh, first of all, my relationship with tennis, I cannot play. I have I have no backhand. Like my arm just doesn't sort of bend in the right way. Yeah, tennis has always been the perfect example of a sport that I will watch and not play. That's definitely there's a lot of sports that come under that come under that category for me, but tennis is probably the the prime one. Um, yeah, I always watched. Obviously, you grow up watching Wimbledon, and then you sort of get into a few of the other ones as you as like time limits kind of allow. The trouble with Australian Open and US Open, like you know, we're recording this as the US Open final happened last night. Uh, anyone watch that just out of interest? Nope. No, yeah. for the exact reason that you mentioned. I mean, so I I love team, and he won, but I did I did not watch. You love it. who? Dominic Team, he he won the US Open last night. He's got a great backhand, way better than mine could ever be. Never heard of him. In terms of who I think is the goat of tennis, yeah, I used to obviously growing up watching Federer, absolutely love him. Just the way he plays the game um, is amazing. And then I think I think I saw it on Twitter actually, and I and maybe start thinking that people start slating slating Federer and calling Novak the true goat. And I was like, let's just see if this backs up. The guy's got come in to the sport when Nadal and Federer were at their primes, got winning records in Grand Slams against both of them and is on course to total up the number of slams. I mean, obviously Novak is a terrible guy and his whole like anti-vax thing. He's just hit, like definitely hit deliberately that ball at that woman's throat recently. So, um, you think, yeah, yeah. You, You see it and he knows, he knows what he's doing. He knows he's, he knows he's making it look like he's not, but he knows he's what he's doing. Anyway, yeah, uh, I don't like him as a bloke, but I think he is definitely the greatest player of all time, and nothing can change my mind about that now. Dan, mm. um, I I like tennis. I enjoy playing tennis. When I was a kid, my parents paid for me and my sister to go to summer tennis camp, but I think I turned out one out of the seven days because I didn't like it. <laughs> They're quite, scary. I, They're quite now, scary. Tennis summer camps. I remember just being really being nervous a as a youngster. Yeah. Having to go to those, being, just being left there with, you know, sh- sorry, mum, but a, sh- a shitty packed lunch. Um, and then <laughs> having to play against kids who are sometimes four or five years older than you. I remember mm. doing them just sort of playing little to no actual tennis, just running around and playing like British Bulldog across the tennis court or something like that. Like... Money value for money tennis wise was rubbish, but um, I like I only really watch Wimbledon. For me, the goat, probably I like Federer, as I'm sure many people do. I hear lots of chatter about him being a little bit of a, <laughs> a sneaky guy. Do you want to elaborate? <laughs> yeah, sneaky guy. Come <laughs> when on. it comes, to, when it comes to doping and stuff. Episode four, and we're throwing out but. some wild accusations. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I think it's something that quite a few people have heard. So I don't think we're going to be top of the list for Federer's entourage to be targeting. Cease and desist to dusty trophies. But I, I still think he's, for me, how old is he? 39. I just, I think he looks so good. He always has nice watches. He's so he he always looks so composed, and he's yeah he's bloody good. 
So for for me, I do love that he puts his watch on before he actually goes up and gets yeah, his well, trophy. That's where time. he makes his yearly salary, probably. Well, um, he's probably got a few other revenue streams. Um, Ian, I'd echo what you said. I'd argue for Novak. So he's got something ridiculous, like 140 million prize money, despite entering the game later than some of those other greats. And I think he'll break Federer's record of of 20 Grand Slams. Yeah. I mean, Djokovic is on 17 at the moment. Federer 20. Federer's coming back from a double knee surgery. Now, if if Federer comes back and wins a major after that, then I'm reporting him straight to Wada. There's there is there is no way. <laughs> Federer's on his way out though. Is how how old is Djokovic? Yeah, people have said that about Federer before though. A bit and like then MJ. he came back and won a couple more Wimbledon's or something yeah, like think... that. But is is being goat? Is being the goat? The, uh, uh, this isn't a loaded question. It does that take into account your personality as well to be like the greatest all round player ever? Well, that's your opinion, Dan. It's like MJ, Michael Jordan. He was. You know, he was very competitive and et cetera through the documentary, but he was a pretty good bloke as well. Whereas, like, Joey Barton was never going to be GOAT, was he? Well, <laughs> if Joey Barton was better at football, he might be the GOAT, but he's got I mean, he's got a few issues yeah. to address there first. Yeah, it's a debate between Ronaldo and Messi, and you could argue that, well, I would argue that Ronaldo's a complete tosser. Yeah, he's still always going to be in the conversation for Grace full time. I think Djokovic... Like you said, Ian, it's been a it's been a, it's been a monumental bell end over the last few months. Um, you know his charity tournament that he hosted during peak COVID, um, and then obviously they they all got COVID. Needless to say, yeah, yeah. And then a couple of weeks later, he was pictured not wearing a mask despite strict rules that were in place in uh, where he was holidaying. He's just yeah, I think he's he's definitely gone down in my estimations as a human being. Um, but for tennis ability alone, I would argue that he is number one. Yeah, I also think that that kind of uh, improves his status as the tennis goat for me, just the fact that he's never ever he came into the like I said he came into tennis when Nadal and Federer were at their prime, like two immensely popular athletes. Like you had such a good narrative around them, especially the '08 Wimbledon final where you got like, the old like classical genius pro with the perfect technique. You know, it's like young sleeveless Spanish bull who like throws him off his throws him off his game and it's kind of like, yeah, the kid versus the kind of elder statesman kind of thing. And that narrative like served tennis so well until Djokovic came along. So Djokovic is remember like he won so much and crowds were always rooting against him, no matter who he played against. And especially in those finals, like Federer and Nadal and and Murray like so immensely popular wherever they played, but Djokovic has had to do it and had to carve out this winning record with basically the majority of the crowd in the arenas that he's playing in yeah. against him yeah. and kind of wanting him to yeah. lose. And there was a time where I think I read some article. But there was a time where he just accepted it and uh, just said like, well, like when they shout when they shout Roger, I hear Novak or something like that. It was just like one of those things. It's like. Yeah, go yeah. for it. Yeah. I kind of respect him more because of that as a tennis player. Yeah, that's that's nice insight actually into his mind. So a young man from the Scottish town of Dunblane is paused Thank you. Thank you. Please. Please. on an epic moment for British tennis. 
match point in the gold medal match at the Olympic Games. And it was three aces to win it. Look, we'll move back on to Andy Murray. Um, so he lost to Federer uh, in that in that 2012 final, and then just showed remarkable bounce back ability. To be honest, so he then thrashed Federer a couple of weeks later in the Olympics final, uh, which was actually at, at Wimbledon, but doesn't count as Wimbledon. Uh, and then he ground out a five set win against um, our goat Novak. That was the first. Uh, that was the first Grand Slam to be won by an, by a British person in. 70 odd years but still it was Wimbledon that of course would be top of his list and and that he yearned to win. Dan you mentioned earlier that when you think of tennis you think of Wimbledon so I'd I'd like you to elaborate a little bit more about I suppose what what does Wimbledon mean to you? What does Wimbledon mean to me? It's similar to a bit like the Ashes it's kind of it's one of those very British cheery sports where they're all in white and, you know, grass stains and it's very, it's a very r- romantic side of, it's like that thing, kind of, we're all in our gardens, we've got eating strawberries and it's champagne or whatever, whatever the tr- traditions are. So in that sense, I like it, but I never, I always pop on semi quarters maybe but semis and finals i don't really watch the lead up i guess as our, <laughs> our listeners of what gathered from these podcasts my sporting knowledge isn't um as in-depth as yours ian yeah so i don't claim to have like, the greatest level of expertise about tennis but i think everyone becomes kind of armchair experts when Wimbledon rolls around don't they um one last thing maybe i have like watching kind of like tim henman and stuff like that growing up when watching Wimbledon is it's the only sport that my mum would get really, really into. And was he was he any good, Tim Henman? I remember growing up. Uh, with him. Yes, he was like perennial kind of Wimbledon semi finalist and never got never got beyond it. So he kind of gave he kind of gave a little tantalising hope that he might one day win it and become the first Brit to since whatever Fred Perry. But um, he was never was he a little bit, he was, was he a little really bit sexy? Enough. No, he looks like a giant. Nerd. <laughs> he's not sexy. He commentates no. now though. He's pretty good. He's pretty good on commentary. I think. <laughs> Google Tim Henman right now and tell me if you think have anything. <laughs> okay, <Then laughs> carry on. Let me get a photo of Tim Henman. No, um, yeah, I, 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 I think I was having to think about Wimbledon earlier on. Maybe, maybe there's a time. Maybe there's time to get to this later. Um, <laughs> you just right, spotted Henman. Yeah, maybe he's not that sexy. But yeah, he's not bad when he's young. Um, <laughs> Looks a little bit like a politician. Yeah. But yeah, it's it's the one sport that my mum would get super into and like screaming at the TV. And I'm sure everyone else's mums are doing the same thing. Screaming at the TV when Wimbledon is on saying like, why are you hitting it straight back to him? Why don't you hit it to the bits where he's yeah. not? It's like, mum, I'm sure yeah. he's trying very hard. And I'm sure he knows a little <laughs> bit more about tennis than you do to like not just take your advice there. But um, I think I think that's the thing that penetrates about Wimbledon is, is the fact that like, you know, well, once a year, everyone gets into it. It's like England in the World Cup when they go deep and stuff like that. Like you say, find these Twitter comments. Like everyone knows exactly how to fix Murray's serving problems against yeah. left-handers or whatever. Um, so we'll just mm. we'll look at the tournament itself in a tiny bit of detail, and then we'll, we'll chat a little bit more shit. So Murray was seeded number two for this tournament, and really, it was quite interesting because there was so much pressure on him. He'd won the Olympics, he'd won the U.S. Open. Everyone sort of thought that he would 
finally get the better of Djokovic and Federer and, and Nadal. It, it looked like it was plain sailing, to be honest. He got through the first four rounds without dropping a single set. And then he got to Vadasco in the quarters. It, by the way, Dan, if you, if you think Henman's sexy, you should Google Vadasco. Um, but <laughs> all, of a, all of a sudden, he'd cruised through the first four rounds and he came to Vadasco in the quarters and suddenly he was two sets down and everyone was mightily confused about what was going on. Uh, sort of the, the Murray of yesteryear reappeared and he was sat in his chair, you know, with the, the, the ball girl with her umbrella over him and he was just muttering like a madman saying how shit he was, uh, which I think is something I've always actually found quite endearing about Murray, how grumpy yeah. he gets when he's when he's losing. His um, stares to his box, yeah. Exactly. Exactly. Um, you know, a lot of people said that, you know, like Sue, who we mentioned earlier, who thinks he's just a, a miserable git. Um, I actually think that, that that's quite charming because we can all relate to getting a little bit wound up on a, on the sports field. Um, anyway, his, his venting seemed to work because he sprinted to 6-1 in the third set before Andrew Castle, who I'm sure we all know, uh, some of the most dreadfully predictable commentary just just called it mission improbable, and of course you know we we wouldn't be here if if Murray didn't go on to win that three two, so got through to the semis, faced uh, Jersey Janovic who you may have never heard of. He was around for about two years and again predictably was being labelled as the big serving pole by every every single person that, that commented on the game. Um, There's always a big server, isn't there? Always a big server. And every time, you know, they seem to get... get just Every time they seem to face the big four, you know, Murray, Nadal, Federer, Djokovic, don't know what it is about their style of play, maybe the fact they can just return everything, but they always just get put on their arse. And it was the same in this situation here. Murray just... You know, dismantled him in, in four sets once he'd worked out how to return his serve, basically. Um, that leads us on to the final. And we've got the matchup that we wanted, the first seed versus the second seed, Novak versus Murray, the GOAT versus, you know, the, the heart of Britain. Um, the most important question that arose from that, from that final is, it's actually one for you, Dan, uh, as our resident fashionista. Okay. So what I want to know is who won the best dressed award in the Royal Box? Was it A, Bradley Cooper or B, Gerard Butler? There's no, there's no right answer. This is you, this is your answer. Um, Gerard Butler looked a little bit um, that's straight from Fratton Park or something. He looked a little bit chubby. No offence. Big, <laughs> big G. Bit chubby, did you say? Chubby, yeah. I think Bradley looks better <laughs> in his suit. Um... Yeah, it's, it's unfair for Bradley Keeper, isn't it? Well, all jokes aside, that was a fantastic moment. Uh, it kept the BBC kept reverting back to Gerard Butler and, and Bradley Cooper, and they were so animated in support of Andy Murray, which I thought was um, was pretty fun because you never really saw Andy Murray as being someone that could uh, attract you know fans from a from a global perspective, but clearly. Maybe yeah. just they just They look so they, mischievous. They seem though. to love him. Like they always look like they, they look like two schoolboys who've like been upgraded or something, and they're like, oh, <laughs> <laughs> like taking photo. There's this clip where they're like, 
Bradley had like a photo on his phone. He showed Gerard, and they're like laughing, and they're like, seeing something funny. They they look like they shouldn't be there. Not obviously they should be there, or however they got there. But they looked like very mischievous two boys in I think pale that's blue one of the, suits. Yeah, one of the unique things about Wimbledon as well, when you think about it as a sporting event and a kind of cultural event, is that there's always so much focus on like who comes into the royal box, and it's like oh Bex is in again with posh, and you know. People are kind of watching it for Bradley Cooper and Gerard Butler's reactions to the tennis as much as anything else. Like it's just kind of another thing that kind of star power that other kind of events don't really have as much, or they don't market it as much as part of like the appeal. Mm. Something that we haven't covered actually is where the both of you sit on the sort of Murray love hate scale because he seems to be fairly divisive, which I don't necessarily understand why, but. Um, be interested to hear your thoughts first, Ian. Oh, I absolutely love Murray. Obviously, um, I don't know. He used to. I think we we briefly glossed over it in the uh, in the Rory episode, didn't we? About how Murray kind of like took a while to become the national hero that he that he now is, and because people were sort of saying he's he's a bit too Scottish, you know, Scottish when he loses, British when he wins, kind of thing. And he made the joke about sporting whoever was playing against England. Um, in the World Cup that whichever one he was talking about it's like you know I, I, I do love him for that I think his personality that a lot of people misconstrued as boring he's just got kind of a pretty dry sense of humour and I absolutely have loved him from the start and will continue to love him very simple answer it's something I've never understood I know that Hamilton gets a lot of bad rap as well just get behind the people that that are sort of representing our country. Yeah. Well, why? Why would you not? You know. But I think we're bad at that, aren't we? I think, again, we always. Well, I always moan about English football, but I, if they do anything wrong, we're of all like globally, we are the first people to knock them down. When you'd think, if they've struggled, they've done their best, and they've been knocked out, whatever. You know, they're they're love a nation that got behind them and got them back on their feet but I think we just love bitching and moaning about stuff like all those tweets in the in the introduction so everyone's suddenly a tennis player and they know how to serve and they oh Murray should have done this but I know I agree with you I mean I like Murray I think I like his dry dry wit and his kind of how his slightly um kind of gloomy character but at the end of the day it's what he does on the court that we care about isn't it He's yeah, another thing I, sorry, yeah, another thing I said to Hernan Murray, like, if you, if you think he's boring or something like that, like, are you su- are we surprised that any like professional level athlete is boring these days when all they've done, all Andy Murray has done since age about eight, is play tennis for seven to eight hours a day and then think about yeah. tennis for the other hours in the day. Like, are we surprised he's got a pretty one dimensional personality? Like, we can't really like, hold that against him. I, d- I don't even think it is one dimensional. I think he just likes a, a simple life. There was a documentary that was released, I think, maybe after he'd won Wimbledon, and he just like, he just enjoys the quiet life when he's not playing tennis. It's such an intense environment that he wants to just walk his dogs and be with his wife. And I think yeah, yeah, yeah. that's something that I I can definitely relate to. Um, just when you're out of your your work environment, just um, simplifying things is is probably a pretty good way to go. I think you were probably going to get onto this anyway, but um, I think the watershed moment with Murray was that speech at Wimbledon 
2012, the classic, like, it's not going to be easy. And he, like, says, keeps on saying, like, Roger's not bad <laughs> for a 30-year-old, like, in tears. And, like, I can't believe, yeah, he's just lost, like, the biggest match of his life, Wimbledon 2012. Sue Barks just chucks a microphone into his face and tells him to speak to everyone in the ground and also everyone watching at home. Just deliver a speech. Like, what's, what's he supposed to say there? And he does a remarkable job, like, congratulates Roger and says, like, I'll be trying to be back next year. I'm doing my best. Thank you all for getting behind me and stuff like that. And, like, that kind of vulnerability and, like, tears in front of the nation at that level. Like, how can you not feel for him? How can you not want this guy to ex- succeed and do everything once in life? And I think, I don't know, did that did that feel like a watershed moment? Or is that just me kind of trying to make up some narrative where it doesn't exist? It did to me. I then felt like when we got to 2013 that he might almost have stage fright almost like PTSD of not that should be taken lightly but of Wimbledon itself but you could argue that was quashed by his uh, Olympics victory the year before anyway I think there were just, there were just a couple of moments and particularly early on in that final uh, so he, he actually raced to a one set lead but then when he almost got closer to that glory he started to, to drop his level a bit and we entered the second set and Novak very quickly went 4-2 up and had a chance to make it 5-2. Um, but then I think Murray looked his box and there was a steeliness that he didn't have the year before when he when he faced Federer. And um, I remember Djokovic had a, a second serve to go 5 when he was aiming to go 5-2 up. And Murray just jumped at it. And it was his first cross-court... It was his first return winner of the game, actually. Um, and it led to him breaking back again. Nice. And all of a sudden, he just um, turned into this animal to, to go two sets to love up. And Djokovic, who, as we've already discussed, is one of the coolest characters uh, when he's playing, it was, it was his turn to capitulate. And yeah, like, mentally tennis you're out there on your own you don't really get any coaching do you and it's kind of like you know covered in the film Wimbledon with Paul Bettany uh which we all love um, <laughs> I haven't seen that in ages that used to, that, that used to be one of my favorite films because Kirsten Dunst was one of my you know early she your little crush Mary Jane early crushes or whatever you it, it would have been in Mary Jane from Spider-Man Something, I was chatting to my sister about this the other day with tennis, um, something that's amazing about it, and I guess cricket has it as well, is it's a game where you're not kind of confined by the concept of time. It's one of those, it's a game where you can come so close to something, but you can still lose like everything. And I guess football is the same way. You could be like one nil up, but at 90 minutes, it's, the game's done there is a kind of a decided point. Whereas like there's, and there's times with Murray and Djokovic when Murray could have finished it, he could finish it, he could finish it and he doesn't. Then it goes back and then it goes, he could get so close and then he doesn't. And I think that whole mentality thing of getting so close to something and then 
losing it, not losing it, but having to have the mental and physical strength and go at it again and again and again. And I've watched finals in the past where you can, it must be so infuriating. Uh, he just wants to get over the line, especially as when they've been, they've gone on f- for so long and they're so exhausted. But I think that's an interesting element about the sport where it's not, it's done when you've reached the score instead of when the time, because I haven't some Wimbledon games like carried on to the next day. Yeah, yeah. Oh, plenty. I mean, some have gone on for like, thirty plus hours. I think John Isner versus Nicholas Mahu, um, which must have been about yeah, sort of early yeah twenty tens. That was two days. Um, yeah, I think I, I agree with that. Chop. So you win a set, and then you almost reset. There's no there's not necessarily at the top of that game a difference in fitness between the top four so when you get one set under your belt you then it's not as though you have a cushion for the for the next set and you can very easily lose that and I think that's why we get so anxious about uh, things like you know Murray in this final because even when he was two sets to love up we knew that at any moment Djokovic being the great champion that he was could just turn it on win one and then if it gets to 2-1, the chances are that, that Djokovic is going to go on and, mm. and win the next two. I mean, that, yeah. that's, that's what happened last night with Zverev and Team. Um, team being the favourite going into it, but Zverev basically raced into a two-set lead. But Team was able to, to catch him up pretty, uh, pretty comfortably and, and take the victory. Yeah, you look at the stats this win, you see it's a, it's a three-set game, which means Murray won in straight sets. And you think, oh, it was bloody easy. He stomped him. But then you see that the game lasted three hours. And you think, like, how long each of those sets must have been. Like, how hard work it is to overcome Djokovic, even just for a set. And then to do that three times in a row is is completely crazy. Yeah. So, linking on that, that point, this, here's my little fact. So, to you two, do you think you could win a point um, if you were playing your best tennis, do you think you could win a point against Mario Djokovic? <laughs> no. Tom? No. What about Not against a single one? Well what about against Serena Williams? No. Um No. If yeah. she if she double faulted, then yes. <laughs> so according to a poll uh, last year from YouGov um, one in eight men believe they could score a point in a tennis match against Serena Williams. The, oh, that's so funny. The poll which surveyed 1,732 adults in Great Britain posed a simple question. Do you think if you were playing your very best tennis, you could win a point off Serena Williams? 12% of men surveyed their response, I think I could, along with 3% of women. But... And then 14% of the men and 10% of the women responded that they don't know, which is pretty... That's a quarter of people who give themselves a shot. It's I, just... I think people underestimate how quickly a set can go by. I mean, what is That's a po- effectively a point. 24 points if they win every point. If Serena played against me, it would take her 24 points to win a set. This is just... I think people underestimate how quickly they bloody serve. Like I remember 
when I was a little bit younger, just going down to play uh, Charlie Warren. I think you were there as well, Dan. Yeah. And I was like, all right, he was, you know, just to explain to the listeners who don't know who he is, he's a, you know, he was pretty good at tennis back in the day. But yeah, I was just like, go on then, give me a full serve. And it was past me before I even blinked. And yeah. And that's Charlie. That was, that's Charlie Warren. That's not Serena Williams. He's like been on top of the world for 20 odd years. But interesting, not not to drop you in it, Tom, Straight away, you answered for Murray and Djokovic, but there was a pause for Serena. Yeah. And I've never even seen you play tennis. No, I think what... I can't can't play to a decent level. Not obviously, you know, a shit level, but I can uh, hold my own with some, some relatively okay players. Why there was a pause is I just thought back to... When Serena and Williams played the world's number two hundred and one in the men's game, so <laughs> long story short, uh, I believe it was John McEnroe said that Serena or Venus would never beat uh, a male player ranked in the top seven hundred, and Serena bit back at that pretty ridiculous and pointless comment from McEnroe, saying. I guarantee we would beat any male player that was outside of the top 200. So, of course, the world number 201 took up that challenge and they they actually had a two-set game, uh, which was won, I believe, 6-love, 6-1 by the male player. Now, I think there was a caveat to that, that they were ranked 201st, but at the same time, I think they'd been in the top 10 before and had been injured or something along those lines. So that's that's why there was a little bit more of a, a gap. I was just sort of slightly doing the maths and <laughs> realising that I'd still fall miles short of uh, of getting a single point. Yeah, I, do you reckon you'd crack the top world's 700? or Would I crack the, the world's... <laughs> maybe maybe 700, the, the world's top 700 million? Yeah. Nice. <laughs> Hold on, second set. Let's do this now. So yeah, we got to the point where Djokovic uh, was two sets of love down. Um, Andy Murray seemingly looked like he had the edge, but what that didn't take into consideration was the fact that, that Djokovic actually had that double mental edge over Murray. So. In their 18 meetings prior to this one, Novak had won 11 of them. And sort of more recently, he'd won the previous three on the bounce. He'd also won six Grand Slams. And Murray, obviously, had only won one, but he was now on home soil, which had that added level of pressure. So at this point, Novak decided it was time to prey on on Murray's understandable anxiety. And Murray capitulated. He was a double breakdown, and Novak was serving to go 5-2 up and had a point on his serve to go 5-2 up. Now, I remember being sat outside at a friend's house and just being devastated because I just had that British cynicism just flowing through my veins. And I thought if he lost this set, he probably would go on to lose the match. Needless to say, Andy Murray, professional tennis player, had far more resilience than than I do. Uh, And there were no tantrums from the Scot, but rather he just decided, okay, 
it's now or never. All of a sudden, Murray won three points on the bounce to take it to 4-3. So he avoided uh, that 5-2 result, which may have been curtains for him. Then he won another game on his own serve. So we're now at the point where it's two sets of love, it's 4 all, and it's 15-30. So Murray is is got the edge in this game. And this is actually my favourite point of the match. So I'd have a look at this one in particular. It's when the game is 2-love, 4-all, 15-30. He gets this drop volley and he whips this amazing passing winner. And it's one of those real ones where the crowd are on the edge of their seat for about a minute while the rally is going on before that rapturous applause, which sent him to a double break point, which of course he won uh, and then had set himself up to serve for the match. Uh, yeah, I think tennis does look the best when one player is the net and those those passing winners, they are, they look so easy for the players to do, but anyone who's ever tried to sort of come to the net and then cream one like four inches inside the baseline, uh, yeah, it's, it goes wrong way too much of the time, doesn't it? You just end up rocketing it out, like out yeah. of the entire arena. Of course. Because Djokovic, did, I was watching the highlights and Djokovic did that, at what point in, I um, may ruin your notes here, but he did that lovely little soft-handed dink over the net and it hit the net and it could almost like in a parallel universe would fall back but it like rolled onto oh, yeah, Murray's in the, in the last game yeah that, yeah that was um yeah that that's was... that's the final game when when Murray's obviously tantalizingly close and then little things like what you just mentioned so he plays a, a sort of slice backhand can't remember if it's a volley or if it's just a a general bit of play but it clips the top of the net and just deftly drops over like to the point where it's impossible for Murray to get anywhere near it and he does um, the classic like oh sorry sorry hold your hands up sorry the, it's like what yeah, classic, classic, oh sorry but yeah, yeah you're not sorry yeah. at all I remember the commentators well, one of them was like oh perfectly played and then who's <laughs> is it Boris Andrew Becker? Castle is that the other guy? He's a bit oh, weird. Oh god, I hate. He I was mean, like, it was like perfectly played, and then I was like, not complete luck. Not that he's Scottish, whatever accent that was. I but this Boris Becker was Boris on comms Becker as well. Was just like, no complete luck. Such a strange guy on commentary. Was like, yeah, he's bizarre. I think I watched the final game again today, and he's like, Murray's sort of um, about. I think he's just thrown away his like third championship point. He's like juice. Murray's like on his second serve. Boris, you can tell he's just leaned like right up into the mic, like <laughs> the time is now. <laughs> just before he serves. Yeah, yeah. Like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, he says something. <laughs> I mean, oh. in fairness to Boris, he he had it all and then he lost it all, and then he just rebranded yeah. as like selling boxes. So Bankrupt I think loser, my yeah. head my head would be fairly gone as well if I was in his position. <laughs> that, was, <laughs> that was an exceptional impression of uh... <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. Well, look, well, let's rattle off the final game, um, final game of the match because it was it actually was a bloody long one. If you're watching the highlights of this, it goes on for about ten minutes in the highlights themselves. So, Andrew. Sir Andrew these days serving for the match steams to a 40 love lead uh, gets those three championship points that you mentioned in um, and then 
five minutes later, you know, we're four juices in. Um, but finally we get that rapturous cry from the Wimbledon stands of Andy, Andy. Oh, God. And then it's actually the most remarkable display of defence um, when it's juice. The th I think this is the fifth juice by this point. Uh, so Djokovic has one of those ones where he's got two, sort of can do two smashes and he doesn't execute either as well as he should. No. And uh, Murray managed to return them uh, and mm. eventually win that, well, get to that championship point. Um, that was a huge point, wasn't it? Oh, huge point. Huge point, because it, it would have given Djokovic a break point, which would have meant that back on level terms for the set. And yeah, yeah. As, as we've already mentioned, when you get, get to level terms in a set, you almost reset, uh, can go on and win that, and then just, just go again and, and keep winning. That's the other um, kind of mental thing when like Djokovic is winding up for a smash. Like, it's like imagine like Novak Djokovic, like, number one tennis player in the world, winding up for a smash. And he's got the whole court to aim at, and you still like try and get the ball hundred percent. You still try and guess the, where he's going to go hundred percent. It's going to come off like yeah. one time in five hundred, but Murray still kind of goes for it and actually wins the point. And it's just like the huge kind of like reserve to actually just even mentally think I've got to try and defend this is mm. more than I'd ever be capable of. And this the. the I mean, the speed that it's going to be coming at as well. So do you think, how much of it do you think is him predicting it and how much do you think of it is him getting there? If that makes sense. Oh, who knows? But yeah, well, his court speed and defence is ridiculous as well, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, he, look, let's, I might as well reveal the spoiler. He he goes on to win that and falls to the floor and, and floods of tears, obviously. Well, sort of semi-floods. Um, and then they, when he's interviewed after by, by Sue Barker, he basically says that in that final game, he was just on complete... Can't remember acting anything. on survival instincts. Yeah, he couldn't yeah, remember You can see him, like, staggering back up to, like, serve. He's so knackered. If You can tell, like you said, if he, if he lost that, like, third set, the game was so over. Like, he had to do it then. Yeah. 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 And I think... Yeah, I mean, to, to answer your question directly I don't think he had a clue what he was doing in that f I, th I think most of the time he'll be very measured and he'll be predicting angles and shots that Djokovic is going to play but you just get to a point where it's just you know I've done my thousands and thousands of hours playing this game and I've got no idea what to do apart from shut off mentally and hope for the best yeah. uh, and it's served served him well hmm. there was a brilliant um well, I'm sure it's not brilliant for Murray, but it made me laugh watching it. Is I think it was possibly his winning point. There was like a, there was like a massive premature cheer. Oh God, yeah. That must be in like infuriating. Uh, this is. But at the same yeah. time, I wonder if he acts like you just said, Tom. I wonder if he even hears it. I this is one thing I wanted to I wanted to bring up today when we're talking about Wimbledon as well. Like in terms of because um, it's like you know strawberries and cream and a day out and everyone's everyone's got a story of how they tried to queue in, queue and get up and go like everyone watches tennis once a year how many like in terms of we talk about like knowledgeable crowds or something like that the rna golf like british open everyone who's like at the at the event is a complete golf nut and absolutely like just gets off on all the golf stats inside wimbledon sent the court on the finals day it's just everyone who's who can pay for a ticket i, I think yeah in terms of like knowledgeable crowds, there's the least amount of people there. And you can hear it in that final game. 
where people are just screaming when something like lands near the line going like yes Andy and it's like you get the first wave of people going like scream prematurely and then you get the second wave of people going like shh if you're Andy Murray it's like I just wish there were no like absolute part timers mm. on their forty fourth glass of champagne <laughs> in this in this arena today. I wish there were just just tennis fans who knew like when to shut up, when to cheer, and like when yeah when not to. I always remember I was watching Pompey oh. once, and um, it was back in back in the era when Peter when we had Peter Crouch, and there was a cross, I think, and. Peter tried to like do like a volley and he just like skied it massively. And this guy behind me shouted, Peter, we spoke about this. <laughs> and I turned around. <laughs> there was this topless dude with a fucking cap on. And I was like, So you're telling me you're on first name terms with Peter Crouch? He tweeted him. He tweeted him. Just like people just, yeah. Terrible yeah. for that sport. But anyway, uh, the rest is history with Andy Murray. So he went on to win um, a further two major championships, taking that tally up to four. Uh, obviously, in my opinion, one of the greatest British sports people of all time. Um, he came into tennis in the most difficult era to have ever existed and probably uh, to ever exist moving forward and still came up trumped with several major titles. Um, I do feel that if we were in any other era, he would have had you know, multiple, multiple major championships. And also, if he wasn't in an era where everyone else around him was doping, then <laughs> he may have had fewer injuries. Um, we'll leave it at that with the tennis itself. Any, any final thoughts, chaps? Is he out now? I know he's had some terrible injuries. Yeah, he's barely playing. Well, the documentary trailer I saw. He came back for the US Open and um, yeah, he's just, he lost in the second round. He actually came back. So he must have remarkable mental strength because he was two sets of love down in the first round and he somehow won 3-2. But then, of course, he came up against the 15th seed, um, a young Canadian chap. And just, yeah, no chance um, in the second round. So I think safe to say that his time is done. Um, I think he's just playing for a jolly now, to be honest, and who can blame him? Yeah, I don't think he's like affecting his legacy badly or anything like that by, by carrying on, even though he's got real no hope of going deep in big tournaments. But yeah, yeah Andy's earned the right to do whatever the hell he wants in my book. So if he wants yeah. to keep playing... Go for it. So, Dan, do you want to leave us with a, f a few final words of wisdom about Andy Murray's glistening tennis career? <laughs> I don't know why I do. I love these outros. <laughs> <laughs> I have the least knowledge about the sport. Exactly, my, that's what makes it the, my gleaming the best listening. words of wisdom is, however low the low, never listen to Susan. <laughs>
Thanks for listening as ever and for all of the brilliant and supportive comments so far. We really want to use your feedback to make each episode better than the last. Uh, There's no preview for now for the next episode, so keep an eye out for teasers of what that will be on our social media. Uh, Hopefully you've got the gist of what we're trying to cover by now, so send your suggestions as well. Other than that, see you next time.